My friends, uh, I'm really excited to introduce you to my friend Dan. If you want to come on up, brother. Uh, he is awesome. I, I got to spend the afternoon with him yesterday and just had a great time. Dan is uh, an author, a theologian, a teaching pastor at Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, yeah, uh, just really excited for the message that he's going to bring today. It's something I think all of us really need. So if you would, give him a hand. Dan, take it away, brother. Hello, my name is Dan Kent. This is really big. I'm going to move it, if you don't mind, so I can move a little bit. Um, I, uh, I, I kind of got to know Zach online, and he invited me to come down, and I, I am so excited. First of all, I was really excited to see the Popeye statue. I am, uh, uh, my wife is going to be jealous. We're, we both eat a lot of spinach, and, uh, and I'm a really terrible vegan. I, I try, but um, I call myself a freegan, which what that means is that I'm a vegan unless it's free, and then I eat. And so I like to go to parties where there's meat because then I can just kind of like pig out. But uh, the, the Popeye statue totally lived up to expectations, just for the record. And I will be leaving a positive Yelp review on that. Um, uh, you know, I'm so grateful to come down here because I spent 10 years writing this book. And I, 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 I was just so moved by this idea and this research that I did. And I spent so much time, and my poor wife read a hundred drafts of this book and uh and and i don't have a huge following i'm not like one of these christian celebrities so any opportunity i can get to share this message i just i appreciate it so much and i just want to thank you ahead of time for your investment of your attention because i believe that your attention is the most valuable resource that you have and what you choose to invest that attention in uh, is, is part of the whole game of Christian discipleship. And so I want to thank you now for investing your attention with me. And, um, and I pray and I hope that, that we can get a good return for this. That being said, uh, there, I, I'm going to be talking about humility. And, um, and I'm going to kind of challenge a couple popular notions of humility. And there's a, a couple layers to this. And, and it might come at you kind of fast. And so here's what I encourage you to do. The first thing is just take what you can take. Just listen and take what you can take. You don't have to memorize or hear everything. Take whatever you can take out of it. Second, uh, they record this and put this on their YouTube page. And, and so if, if this touches you and you want to think more about this, I encourage you to go to the YouTube page. I went there before I came down here. I, I watched like five sermons. I watched Larry's sermon from, from last week, uh, which was very good, by the way. You should watch that. Uh, and, and so I encourage you to go on their YouTube page. What I really appreciate about this church is that Zach has other voices coming in, and that is so admirable. I got to take a sneak peek of some of the guests that he has lined up coming, and I got to tell you, uh, you are very lucky. He's got some really great guests. Coming, so tell your friends that that this church is going to be bringing in some some other people. Uh, that, that's a very blessed thing. There, there's so many churches that get very stagnant with the same leadership, the same speaking, and you're very fortunate to have a leader with that type of vision that can bring in other voices. And so, uh, my hats off to you, Zach, for doing that. Uh, okay, so humility. Let me talk about humility. When you think about the culture that we live in right now, 
okay? When you think of the, the animosity and the hostility that we have right now, I'm, I live up by Minneapolis, and you know what happened there over the last year uh, with the riots and all of that kind of stuff, and so much anger and so much hurt and so much bitterness, and, and it's just kind of bubbling over all over the place. And it, it's not just the police issues. It's not just the race issues. It's just politics in general. It's, uh, you know, what are we doing in Israel? It's, it seems like, you know, LGBTQ+, plus, all of that stuff. There's so many issues that there's so much emotion uh, involved in that, and, and there's so much, uh, so much passion about that. And it really feels like we're not unified anymore. It feels like we have a thousand different silos, you know, and we're not really connecting. And the way people talk to each other, it's so, uh, it seems like it's so orchestrated and it's so meant to kind of like influence. And everybody's trying to lobby. They're trying to lobby you. They're trying to lobby me to get me to look at things that way. And um, and that's great. I think that's good because we should be sharing our ideas. We should be sharing our perspectives. But, and this is the audience participation portion. Clap your hands if you think that we could use more humility right now in this country. Right? That's like the one thing I think everybody agrees on. There's so few things that we all agree on, but I bet you, if you ask anybody on the street, do you think this nation could use some more humility? I bet almost 100% people would say yes. It's almost like asking, hey, do you want some free money? I mean, it's just that obvious. Like, yes, of course, we need more of that. And yet, humility is the hardest thing to find. It's, you don't see very much of it. You see a lot of ego. You see a lot of ego. You see a lot of emotion, but you don't see a lot of humility. Why is that? Um, well, that's sort of what I pursued in writing this book. And, and the conclusion that I came to uh, is that the reason why we don't see humility in these crisis moments, at these most important points, is because we've somehow kind of evolved a view of humility that's just not very effective. It's just not the humility that Jesus teaches. It's something else altogether. And in, by definition, this view of humility is ineffective. And so, of course, we ditch it when we need it most because we have, I believe, a broken understanding of humility. And so I want to talk about um, what Jesus teaches as humility, which I think is very different than what a lot of people may have heard in the church, and it's certainly different than what people hear in culture. Uh, does that sound good? All right. Number one, the first part, and I don't have these numbers. I don't, I don't know why I said number one. That's just a habit of starting. Number one, uh, I, I, have no, I have no idea how many numbers I would have in this. But to start with, let me say this. Uh, humility, I think most people agree that humility has to do with how we view ourselves and how we view others. And, and I think your understanding of humility is really going to hang on uh, what you put at the center of that understanding. What do you look at yourself through and what do you look at others through? And there's a lot of things that we can put at the center there. What I'm going to argue is that what we should put in the center there is Jesus Christ on the cross crucified. When you look at yourself, you should always be looking at yourself through the lens of Jesus Christ crucified. And I'll talk a little bit about what that means in a little bit. But there are so many other perspectives that put something else at the center. And and how I experienced this growing up is that I, I kind of felt like, you know, and like a lot of people, I was uh, uh, born to a single parent, and my mom, she worked long, long hours. And so for 
a lot of my life, I kind of raised myself, you know. I had to kind of figure out, how do I live? How do I interact with other people? How do I tell a good story? Just like all this normal living stuff, I had to kind of figure that stuff out on my own. And I probably did okay on, on most of that. Made a lot of mistakes, of course. But I remember in high school, probably 17, 18 years old, I felt like I was being pulled by these two ditches. I felt like I had these two perspectives that were pulling on me about this very central question. And the question was this, how should I view myself? How should I consider myself? And it seems like a very abstract philosophical question, I know, but it is so practical and it affects everything in my day. And, and I felt like as I was trying to live, I felt like I was being pulled in these two opposite directions. On one hand, I was starting to hang out at this church and I was starting to, you know, I grew up with atheists basically, and I found this church and I, and it was my first experience of Christian community. And I felt loved, I felt beloved, I felt important there, and it just, it, it was like nothing else I had experienced up to that point. And I went there and I, I basically fell in love with God there. However, uh, that church at that time, this is in the early 90s, uh, they had this view of human nature that at that point I just couldn't accept. Uh, and, and what it was, was they, they, they believed that we were fundamentally sinful. That we were totally depraved is the, the phrase that they really like to use. And, and they would sort of almost celebrate that. Where like in prayer they would say things like, Lord, I am just a loathsome sinner. I am absolutely, utterly dependent on you. I can't do anything good. And they would just kind of go on and on and on about that. And, uh, and for me, I, I just couldn't embrace that. And for very simple reasons. I mean, I wasn't a theologian then. I was sort of an idiot, to be honest. Uh, <clears throat> I probably still am. But at the time, that didn't make sense to me because the church had all of these paintings of Jesus. And they had these children's books with Jesus all over the place. And in these pictures, you see, and you've seen these pictures, Jesus has like this movie star hair, and he's got this, somehow he's got perfect teeth, you know? And, uh, and he's got like a kid on his shoulder, and the kid is all giddy and happy. And all the people in the background are happy and jolly. They're just jolly with Jesus. And none of them look like they feel like they are absolutely loathsome and unworthy of love. They look like they're pretty okay with themselves. And it just didn't really connect. Like, why, how could I view myself like that? And yet nobody else in the Bible seems to view themselves like that. Um, and so that was the first thing. But also, like I said, this is in the early 90s. And the self-esteem movement was just going crazy in the early 90s. And you might remember this. Everywhere you turned, everybody was special. You are wonderful. You are great. You need self-esteem. You need positive thinking. It was just all over the place. And I was getting that from school. I was getting this, you are great. You are wonderful over here. You are depraved. You are loathsome. You are horrible over here. Ah, which one is it? Am I, am I bad? Or am I good? Am I fundamentally horrible? Or am I fundamentally wonderful? And it didn't really seem like there was an obvious answer. And it didn't seem like there was a third option. So that was my dilemma. Uh, eventually, I found the solution to that. And that was Jesus' teaching on humility. But it wasn't that easy. Because when I came upon this research, I was in college... And I was given this assignment. And I remember Professor Herzog gave a piece of paper to everybody. And whatever was written on your piece of paper, that was your topic for your paper. And so everybody was getting like sanctification. Oh, I wanted that one. Atonement. Oh, that would have been great. Uh, resurrection. I would have loved that one. And then he gives me my piece of paper. And I open it up. Ah, humility. Pfft. 
How dumb. That's so boring. I got humility. But when I'm studying humility, that's when I came upon a solution to my dilemma. But not right away. Uh, What I usually do when I study something is I will look to see what other Christians have said about the, the topic. And so I started studying what do other Christian leaders think about humility. And it's almost unanimous. It's almost unanimous what, what other Christian uh, leaders have, have said about humility. Humility looks something like this. Humility is the opposite of pride. Is there a slide? Uh, have you heard something like this? Humility is the opposite of pride? That seems pretty intuitive. When I look at that, I think, well, yeah, I can't, as hard as I try, I can't think of a person that's both humble and prideful. And so this seems like this, is, this makes pretty good sense. <clears throat> However, when you think about it for a little while, notice what starts to happen is you start to feel this downward pressure. Because we're, we're told to be humble, and we all agree we could use some more humility. And if this is true, if humility is the opposite of pride, and if I want more humility, well, then I need less pride. Well, what is pride? Pride is being big and pro-self and positive. Well, the opposite of that is to be small and anti-self and negative. And so you see how the more I want to pursue humility from this perspective, the more I have to get small and view myself more negatively. And, uh, and so there's something that doesn't seem quite right. There's something right about it, but there's something also that's a little off about it as well. Pastor Wayne Mack, in his book on humility, he said this, In the Christian life, the way up is down. And that sort of captures this downward pressure that we all feel. You've probably been at a party and you've experienced people like this where you say, you know, we went fishing and I caught a fish. It was about this big. And then somebody else is going to come along and say, oh, well, I caught a fish. It was this big. And they start to one-up you a little bit. When you read research on humility, it's funny. They do the exact opposite. It's like they try to one-down each other. Like somebody will say, I am just a loathsome sinner. And then somebody else will say, oh yeah, well, I am a pulsating ulcer. I am a bleeding wound. Oh yeah? Well, I am a burp trapped in a fool's throat. And they just kind of try to like make themselves smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's like, there's something wrong with that. Then I came upon Matthew 23. And my heart, I'm telling you, it just roared. Uh, And and I'm going to share this passage with you. It's kind of long, and there's a lot here. So just kind of take it in, and then I'll kind of pick, pick it apart a little bit. Uh, Jesus said to the crowds and to the Pharisees and to, the, and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. So you got to do what they say because they're in Moses' seat. you got to listen to them. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything that they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at the banquet tables, and they love the most important seats at the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. And now he turns to his disciples and he says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. 
Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Uh, Keep that up for just a minute. I want to come back to that in just a second. But it's fascinating here because this is Matthew 23. Okay, this is where Jesus, this is, it's called the seven woes in most Bibles. It starts on verse 13, the seven woes. And this is where Jesus just opens a can of you know what on the Pharisees. I mean, he, his criticism in the seven woes is harsh. I mean, he comes at them. But before he gives the seven woes, I think what he's doing in Matthew 23, 1 through 12 is giving the foundation of the Pharisees' problem. They lacked humility. And because of this lack of humility, now the seven woes. This is the, the consequences of it. And, and the first thing that I notice, and this is what caused my heart to roar, is that this ditch of smallness, this idea that humility is the opposite of pride, there's something wrong with that. Jesus rejects it. And you see it right here. It says, Jesus says to his disciples, but you are not to be called rabbi. Okay, first of all, it's not the title that Jesus cares about because he refers to the rabbi, he refers to the teacher earlier in this passage. Jesus doesn't care about the title. What he cares about is the exaltation. It's the lifting up. It's being more important than others. And so right away, he agrees with the ditch of smallness. Pride is bad. Being, viewing yourself as better than others, that's not good. But then notice what he does. The opposite of that is also bad. Do not call anyone on earth father. Do not exalt anybody above you either. Jesus is saying, being above other people, there's something really wonky with that. But being below other people, that's also very wonky. Uh, Humility is something else altogether. Uh, Humility would look something more like this, the way Jesus is teaching it. And if you think about it, if you ask any counselor, if you ask any therapist, hey, what's the opposite of pride? They're not going to tell you humility. They're going to tell you shame. Shame is the opposite of pride, not humility. Humility is contrary to shame and pride. That's a big difference. To say something is contrary to something is different than saying it's the opposite of something. Uh, so, for instance, this is very abstract, I know. So here's an analogy that, that really helped me. You can think of winning a war as the opposite of losing a war. Losing a war, that sucks. Winning a war is, well, it still sucks because it's very violent and there's death and all of that. But you prefer winning a war over losing a war. And those are opposites. Pacifism is contrary to both. Pacifism, it's not a balance between winning a war and losing a war. Pacifism is against the whole war thing itself. Whatever war it is, whether you're winning or losing, pacifism is totally different than all of that. And so too with humility, whatever it is that's creating shame and pride, humility is opposed to that. In the same way that the more pacifist I become, the less warlike I become, the more humble I become, the less shameful and the less prideful I become. Humility is contrary to both. Humility neutralizes both uh, shame and pride. And this is so powerful because what this means, first of all, what it means is that humbling someone or humbling yourself, it doesn't always mean tearing people down. Sometimes it means building people up. And we even sang about that in the opening song, that, that Jesus raises the lowly. Well, 
according to the ditch of smallness, you don't want to do that. The ditch of smallness says, no, if they're down there and they're feeling miserable about themselves, they're doing good. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. We want to raise that person up because no one should feel shame. No one should feel like they're inferior to others because you are all brothers and sisters. You are all uh, loved the same. The second reason why I think this is profound, and the more that you can grow into this, I think the more liberating it can become is because shame and arrogance or pride, these things are like dysfunction steroids. Uh, I've spent 20-some years working in mental health, and and i got to tell you, whatever the dysfunction is, if it's addiction or if it's uh, anxiety or if it's depression, shame and arrogance will amplify them. It will make your... If you take an alcoholic who's full of shame, you have a whole different type of alcoholism. You take an alcoholic who's very arrogant, that's a whole different alcoholism altogether as well. And, and arrogance and shame, they just amplify every problem that we have and they make it worse. And so if humility neutralizes that, i got to tell you, even if you wrestle with those things, humility will make those things a lot more bearable and a lot easier to tolerate and hopefully even grow out of. Um, so how does it work? How does, how do the, what do the mechanics look like? How is it that growing in this humility neutralizes shame and pride? We still haven't really gotten at what this humility is, other than it's not those two things. It's not the ditch of smallness and it's not the ditch of bigness. So what is it? What is at the center of how I view myself that makes it neutralize both shame and pride? And this is what I think it is. I think it's God's unsurpassable love for us demonstrated on the cross. When we put the cross at the center, see the ditch of smallness, they want to put sin at the center of how I view myself. Uh, God doesn't want that. God wants to put the cross at the center. That's his, that's his major primary revelation is the cross. That's how we should be viewing everything. But when we put sin at the center, we're inevitably going to end up in shame. The ditch of bigness will put something else at the center. They're going to put this idealized view of the self. You are wonderful. You are great. That's eventually going to lead to arrogance. But when you put the cross at the center and God's unsurpassable love for you, that changes everything. And, and this is why. First of all, let me talk just a minute about the cross. Because what I'm saying here is that the cross is the perfect revelation of God's character. God's self-sacrificial, other-oriented, choice-based love where he, he does this profound act out of pure, uh, unconditional love for us. Uh, but not just an act of unconditional, pure love. This is an unsurpassable love. And this is what I mean by that. Colossians 3 tells us that on the cross, Jesus became our sin. And if you think about that, that is the most profound idea I think that exists. Because if sin is ungodliness... That means that Jesus became ungodliness. That means that in Jesus, God became not God. God became the antithesis of himself. In other words, metaphysically, philosophically, God could not have gone farther than becoming the opposite of himself. You can't go farther than that. How else could I prove my love for you in any stronger way than becoming the exact metaphysical opposite of myself? I can't. That's, there's nothing possible beyond that that I can show how much I love you than becoming the opposite of myself. And so in that way, God's love for us is unsurpassable. What that means is that fundamentally, the ditches are wrong. We're not fundamentally bad. We're not fundamentally good. What we are fundamentally and I mean this philosophically, fundamentally, we are loved. That's what we are fundamentally. We're fundamentally loved. 
Goodness and badness is this secondary thing. That's why the Bible says things like this. Uh, God says to the Israelites, I have placed before you, I've placed this before you, fire or water, life or death, blessings or curses, goodness or badness. This is something that God puts on our laps, goodness and badness. But fundamentally, we're neither. Fundamentally, we are loved. The second part of this, and it's related, is that we are all brothers and sisters. That is, when God loves me with an unsurpassable love, that he couldn't, he couldn't demonstrate more love than what he did when he loves me. And if he loves Zach with an unsurpassable love, that means, logically, that he can't love Margot more. Because if he loved Margot more than Zach or I, then his love for us would have been surpassable. And what that means, and this is, this is, I know this is abstract, but it is the most important, most powerful thing. If God loves us with an unsurpassable love, that means that we are unsurpassably equal. We are unsurpassably equal. And if you put that verse back up one more time, you can see this in this passage where uh, Jesus says, do not call any, uh, do not let anyone call you rabbi. That is, don't put yourself above others. And then he says, don't put yourself below others. And right in the middle of above and below, he says, you are all brothers and sisters. And I think what he's saying there is that you are all fundamentally, unsurpassably equal. And, and what that means is that if I am unsurpassably loved by God, and if we are unsurpassably equal, then that means I am also unsurpassably secure. And all of the feelings of insecurity that I have, that's an illusion. That's not reality. That's some, that comes from someplace else other than reality. When he says, you are all brothers and sisters, he doesn't say, hey, pretend like you are brothers and sisters. Act like you're unsurpassably equal because it's good for you. No, no, no. He says you are all brothers and sisters. That's reality. All this other stuff that you're wrestling with, that's illusion. You've somehow taken on all of these fake beliefs and fake thoughts. That's what you got to get rid of because the reality is you are all unsurpassably loved, which makes you all unsurpassably equal. So, why doesn't it seem like we are unsurpassably equal? Uh, And the reason for this, I think, is the second kind of element of this. And that is, I believe that we were born into a delusion. (laughs) Now, let me talk just really briefly about that. An, An illusion or a hallucination is when I see something that's not there, or if I hear something that's not there, or if I experience, my, my senses are duped. So if, if, I, if I'm looking at Elvis Presley in the front row here, I'm having a hallucination, because I don't think Elvis is actually there. That's a hallucination. A delusion is a false belief. I am Elvis. That's a delusion. See? See the difference? And what I believe is, I believe that we have all been raised in a very pernicious delusion, a false belief. And that false belief, I think, is orchestrated by the principalities and powers by Satan himself. And that is this. Some people are better than others. That's the delusion. Some people are better. You see this in the disciples over and over again. They, in fact, Luke records the argument happening twice. Even after Jesus chastises them the first time, they're still arguing about it. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Which one of us is going to be better in the kingdom of, of heaven? And Jesus both times has to say, this is a ridiculous argument because you are all brothers and sisters. But we are all raised in this delusion that some people are better than others. And I got to tell you, delusions make us act really weird. Um, In my 20 years of of working in mental health, I specialized in uh, schizophrenic patients. And so (laughs) I've seen it all. And I love, I love this this population. The, The schizophrenic population, the reason why I worked with them is because I had 
a big heart for, for their struggle. Uh, but I tell you, I, I've seen some weird things. I, I saw this lady who, uh, when she was arrested, she had this axe in her hand, and, and she had just gone through her entire neighborhood, and she started bashing in all the garage doors in her neighborhood. And, and these poor neighbors would come home, and there's this big gaping hole in their garage door because of this lady. Um, I had another guy who, um, for two weeks, this is all he did, is he opened and closed his mouth like this. And he walked around slowly, doing that. You know, just it's so weird. He didn't say anything that whole two weeks. Uh, and then I even had the cliche man with the tinfoil hat, you know, where we, we brought him in and we took his baseball cap off and there was tinfoil lined underneath. And you look at that type of behavior and you think, that's so weird. That's so bizarre. It's, it's so irrational. That's what you think when you see that. But it's not. That's the thing. Once you understand the beliefs that these people are living in, Oftentimes the behavior, as weird as it is, it's often hyper-rational. It makes total sense. The lady with the axe was convinced that her daughters were being molested in a garage somewhere. And so she was looking for her girls. She was trying to save her girls. And, and the kid who kept opening and closing his mouth, he had a bad uh, acid trip, and he was convinced that he was a fish. I don't know how, but for, for two and a half, three weeks, he was convinced he was a fish. Uh, the guy with the tinfoil hat was a graduate student, uh, one of the smartest people I've met, and, uh, but he kind of got it into his head that the government was controlling our thoughts with satellites. And so the tinfoil would help repel the magnetic waves that the government was using. Very weird, but it totally makes sense. And I got to tell you, this delusion of inequality is no different. As soon as you believe that some people are better than others, you start to act weird. You start to act really weird. It's just that we don't recognize it because we all share in the delusion. It's like if we were all walking around slowly opening and closing our mouths, no one would think anything of it because we all think we're fish. And that's the same thing with the delusion of inequality because we've all been raised in it. We've all been raised to believe that some people are just better than others. And I don't mean some people are better golfers golfers than others because that's obvious. Obviously, some people are better golfers than others. I'm talking about their personhood. I'm talking about their worth. I'm talking about that part that God loves. We just think that some people are more worthy than others. And and we start to act weird when we believe that. The first thing we do is we become self-obsessed. Because if there's a hierarchy, I need to know where I am in the hierarchy. Right? Well, where am I? Oh, okay, I probably am about here. And once I kind of figure out where I am, now i got to figure out how to move up. Because there are consequences to being low, and there are rewards for being high. And so now I have to start to hustle and work to move myself up. Uh, We start to act really strange. And dumb things become so important. You know, like... My career, how much money I have, what do I drive, uh, how pretty am I, uh, how many, uh, what's my body fat percentage? I mean, all these dumb things. How firm of a handshake does that guy have? You know, just like dumb things we use to say, oh, okay, now I know where he is on this spectrum. You know, it's just stupid. And it's so fun when you read Matthew 23 because Jesus sees it too. He looks at the Pharisees and he says, look at these guys. Look at how ridiculous these guys are. Look at the size of their phylacteries. No, that's not what you think it is. A phylactery is a wooden box that the Pharisees would wear, and it was strapped to their forehead, okay? And in this box was a scroll. And on the scroll was the Torah. And the Pharisees would wear this in front of them so that they would have the law of God with them at all times. It was a really great thing. 
But Jesus says, look at how wide they make their phylacteries. There's something suspicious about this. They want everybody to see that they are wearing their phylactery. And the tassels on their garments are long. And that indicated how much education they had. And what Jesus is saying is, look at these bozos. They want everyone to know that they're good boys and that they're very smart. And they're just boasting about this. And Jesus calls it for what it is. It's all a dumb show. These are all just tinfoil hats. That's all they are. They're tinfoil hats. You are all brothers and sisters. There is nothing you can do that can make you more or less worthy. There is nothing you can do that can make you less worthy. There is nothing you can do that can make you more worthy. You are all brothers and sisters. Get rid of the tinfoil hats. Get rid of this game of trying to move up on this hierarchy because it's futile. It's, it's an illusion. It's not, it's not reality. <clears throat> So how do we live into this? And there's, you know, I wrote a whole book on this, so there's a lot of stuff. But I'll just leave you with two things, uh, and then I'll open up for questions if anybody has any questions about this. The first thing is that we're never going to realize this unsurpassable equality if we continue to affirm and reinforce hierarchy in ourselves and in others. So, for instance, if we're in the ditch of smallness, we have to talk, we have to stop talking small about people. We have to stop talking small about ourselves, uh, because it's just not true. Remember, Jesus became human. He became fully human. Atonement doesn't work unless Jesus is made human like us in every way. He's representing humanity in covenant with God. He couldn't come down as a chicken. Okay, because then he wouldn't be representing humans. He'd be representing chickens. He has to be human in every way. So that should create a floor as to how small we talk about humans. Uh, But more than that, when we start to talk small about people, we reinforce smallness and bigness, and we're right back on the hierarchy game again. So the first thing is, is we have to stop talking small about people. In fact, we should do what the Apostle Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, and that is we should build our brothers and sisters up. He says, we should build them up. Um, Now, obviously, some people have, you know, they don't need to be built up. Maybe they need to be taken down a couple notches. And there's lots of examples of that in the Bible as well. If we're in the ditch of bigness, we have to stop puffing ourselves up. We have to stop uh, getting fixated on this idea that I'm wonderful, I'm special, I'm great. No, you're loved. You're loved unsurpassably. But this idea that you are great there's this implication that you've already arrived as if you have nothing else left to do. But God has all sorts of things for us to do. God has all sorts of things that we need to get better at. It's a long way between here and Christ-likeness. God loved us while we were sinners. While we were at our worst, Romans 6, 8 says, God loved us with this unsurpassable love. But that doesn't mean that we're done. We have a long ways to go, so we have to stop puffing ourselves up. The second kind of takeaway is that we'll never... uh, realize this unsurpassable equality if we continue to put our beliefs about people over the people themselves. And what I mean by that is that we have to stop being fixated on being right about people and start fixating on treating people right. And and so, you know, I mean, look at Jesus. Jesus, in his ministry, in his disciples, he had a zealot, which is basically like a progressive left Antifa member, and he had Matthew, this tax collector, which is basically this Republican nationalist, and they both worshiped at Jesus' feet because Jesus loved the person, not the ideology. Jesus didn't come to save a theology. He didn't come to save an ideology. He came to save Zach. He came to save Dan. He came to save Margo. He came to save people, not... The guy had Judas with him. 
person who is bent on having him killed. And he still worshipped with him because Jesus loved Judas, despite the fact that he had this very bent uh, mentality. Um, and so I think that we have to get better at, at uh, uh, putting people above their beliefs, putting people above their ideologies, and loving people and not rejecting them because of anything else. Humility, uh, it's not, in my opinion, it's not just something that we show to grandma so that grandma is proud of us. Humility is more radical than that, I think. If, as we get good at living this out, as we get better at, at living into God's unsurpassable love for us and our unsurpassable equality, I think that this revolutionizes a lot of things in our lives. Uh, First of all, we don't have to hustle anymore to prove our worth. We don't have to show everybody all the time that we're good enough. We, we can just rest in the relaxed magic of God's love for us. Um, we can make God our all, but we don't have to do it by making ourselves nothing. You know, We can become a full self without becoming full of ourselves. Uh, what I like most about this is that it just changes our interaction with God's creation in just a liberating way. Uh, for instance, if I want to learn how to play the violin, let's say, because I like the sound of it, I can learn how to play the violin without having to ask questions like, what does this say about me? Boy, people are going to think I'm a prodigy if I learn how to play the violin. All of that stuff, I could just get rid of all that. I could just focus on the violin for the sake of playing the violin. And in that way, the world becomes a lot less hostile and it becomes a little bit more like a playground where we can just do things just for the fun of doing it, not because of what it says about me. Gosh, that's so heavy. That's such a burden. And I don't have to deal with that. I can just have fun in God's creation. Hey, again, thank you so much for investing your attention. I hope that this blesses you. Uh, Definitely I'll hang around for a little while if anybody else has any other thoughts or questions. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share this with you. Uh, I spent a lot of time working on it, and it's just such a blessing to be able to share it. So thank you, everybody.